And one thing I wanted to clarify, I was talking to Deanna this week, she was using the student version of this book, and hopefully there wasn't too much confusion or people aren't using, maybe too many of you aren't using that book. The student version, this is chapter two, and so you might, if you're using a different version of On Guard, you might want to check ahead of time lest you be confused, because she's like, your chapter's really long and kind of confusing. I'm like, no, it, okay, so it's, this is Tim's material for in two weeks. So that, that'll take a little more reading. So in case there was any confusion there. Anyway, so when I started attending Church of the Lamb in late 96, maybe early 97, I attended a Bible study on 1 Peter that Steve Galloway was leading. And uh, it was the first time I was actually asked for, like, why do you believe the Bible's authoritative? Uh, why do you believe in the resurrection? Like, he asked me that directly, and I'm like, I have no idea. And fortunately, I was in a, a time in my life where I was re-examining my beliefs, both in God and then specifically at that time in Christianity, because I had started attending church. And um, just that was so great, because it was the first time I, I even knew that was a thing you could ask. And so, but then being a little disillusioned that I grew up in a church where the, I think the typical church experience is to not learn those things, and I still don't understand why that's the case, now that I know the information's available. And I think it maybe it's a little more widespread than it was back when I was younger, but uh, again, at the time, I didn't know any better. Um, in the book, On Guard, uh, Craig has a few different uh, what he calls uh, personal interludes. And in part one, he has one uh, part of what's called a philosopher's journey of faith. I wanted to read a quote from him that I thought was really um, relevant to this topic. He says, a truly priceless gift that Wheaton, which is where he ended up going, uh, I think for, well, obviously for school, but I think it was the second university he attended. What they gave me was an integration of my faith and learning. I saw that as a Christian, I didn't need to stick my brains in one pocket and my faith in the other pocket and never let them see the light of day at the same time. Rather, I could have a Christian worldview, a Christian perspective on science, a Christian perspective on history, a Christian perspective on the arts, and so on. It was at Wheaton that I caught the vision of sharing my faith in the context of presenting an intellectual defensive gospel to appeal to the head as well as to the heart, which is kind of sounds like something Blaise Pascal would say, which is why I love it. But I think it's, it's, it's just a great approach to take. And so hopefully that's something we all aspire to, just to be clear thinking people. And we don't hold beliefs irrationally, but we have them for a reason. And we're always uh, trying to examine those things. So in chapter one, uh, Josh basically covered what's apologetics, why ought we to practice it, and that it is a biblical concept. Um, and the ability to defend our faith is something that ought to be expected of a mature believer uh, and that it's not this side pursuit for nerds and geeks only. Um, and then in chapter two, Ben spoke last week on a little bit more of a philosophical topic. What difference does it make if God exists? So whatever um, sort of superficial significance that materialism tries to generate, uh, the inevitable conclusion of being a byproduct of random impersonal forces makes, uh, or life without God, uh, logically really leads to nihilism or absurdism, uh, meaning life without God, and which he did a great job of having this stick in my mind. Uh, life without God uh, is life without meaning, value, or purpose. Which is my concern on that chapter is that isn't to say that's why we invent God, and, and he did speak to that, um, but it just points to why we do want to ask questions about the origin and the fate of mankind and the universe and why it's relevant for everyone. It's not this abstract academic pursuit that doesn't affect us, it affects everyone and really couldn't be more practical. And ultimately, 
sometimes it's hard for, I'm not sure people wrap their mind around this real well, God does or doesn't exist. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. I mean, the right facts don't care about feelings. And so when we approach these topics, even if we shouldn't be hostile toward them, and we also shouldn't be indifferent about it. Anyway, to that end, uh, much time and thought has gone in over the centuries and put into um, words trying to describe the evidence we see around us uh, pointing to God. Formal arguments on the universe, morality, reason, uh, our very existence, uh, that of what we see taking place in history. And some of those arguments we're going to look at specifically later in the book. Specifically, our argument today is uh, Leibniz's, uh, what's called his contingency argument, and I'll explain what that means later. Why does anything uh, at all exist, or the way Leibniz actually put it is, why is there something rather than nothing? After all, he says, nothing is simpler than having something, and that's sort of his background. And this argument we're going to look at is actually one of the most popular cosmological arguments in history, um, as far as the uh, philosophy of religion goes. And we're, so we're going to watch a short video on it in a minute. One of the questions might be, what is a cosmological argument? A cosmological argument is just an argument that attempts to take some feature of the universe, like the existence of created things, or that even of motion. That's a very popular argument. Things that call out for an explanation, right? We're just compelled to find an explanation. And it argues that this feature is to be explained due to a first cause or God. So the video will take what really could be an intimidating, sort of complicated argument, and it makes it rather simple, I think. So in a book, Craig mentions growing up in the country in Iowa, uh, looking up at the stars and asking, where did this all come from? And I would assume that we've all done that. It's like, it's not just beautiful, but it's just immense, and it just gives you this feeling of almost foreboding, and it's intimidating, and it's, but it's amazing all at the same time, right? Uh, and this is actually something we have in common with the atheists, right? They are also amazed, and they are going to naturally seek an explanation. Ultimately, this is actually a pretty simple question for the Christian, because we have, for example, the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, and more specifically, for example, John 1, 3, through him all things were made, and if that wasn't clear enough, without him nothing was made that has been made, which is very, very clear. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that science has no place and we reject it. We say, oh, God made everything, so we don't need to study anything. That's, that's clearly not the case, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But viewing the universe as a product of a superior being rather than chaos or chance just has always seemed to me, even when I was like, I don't even know what I believe, that was plain and evident to me as the nose on my face. Like, obviously, this didn't come from nowhere. That's silly. So, this, something must have happened. Um, but when the atheist searches for an explanation who's already removed any possibility of the supernatural, they're not going to accept these scriptural arguments. So what other uh, evidence can we pull from? How can we talk to them about this? This is where, as we've studied in Romans, the role of general revelation has a very profound role because it influences every single human being that's ever been alive. Paul argues here in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. We're hopefully familiar with that by now. 
So this common knowledge is one avenue of pointing to the truth. A quick note on vocabulary, we're going to use materialism, atheism, and naturalism sort of interchangeably because for our purposes they convey the same basic idea that the natural or the physical world is all there is. Everything, everything has to be explained in terms of the physical world. And to steal an idea from Ben, this makes an acronym, and to try to surpass him in slides, we'll have a guy <laughs> bouncing around here, man, which actually fits, right? Because man is, I don't know, that kind of fits. It may, maybe not completely. Um, in chapter one, uh, one thing that's worth, I think, covering briefly before we look at the video is Craig goes over what, what does the construction of a logical argument even look like? And the classic example is this. All men are mortal. <clears throat> Socrates is a man. Those are what are called the premises. So what is somebody supposed to conclude from this? We're going to try to do a little interaction, by the way. I'm going to ask you some questions at some point. What's the conclusion? Socrates is mortal. That's, it's kind of like the transitive property of math. I really would love to talk about that. I'm going to refrain from doing so. It's super interesting. Math is relevant. That's all I have to say about that. So <clears throat> yeah, so the only way you can reject the conclusion is say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't Socrates just one of the people uh, that were, was written about and he was just a myth. So you can challenge them and then not arrive at the conclusion and then you have to, have to marshal evidence to say, no, he, he was a real guy and here's why. So if, if we believe these things, you can't reject the premise unless you're just being irrational. That's, that's how a basic logical argument works. Um, okay, so one thing to keep in mind is these are not quite, though, the same as mathematical proofs, okay? What we're trying to show is that the premise is more likely true than false. Because if you're going to say, we have to have 100% proof, unless I see Socrates here in person, I'm not going to believe, then you're not going to get anywhere on anything. So that is not the way these type of arguments work, if you, were, if you were, as I was, trying to compare it to a math problem. A little background, right before we watch the video, is, is actually not just relevant because I think it's interesting, but... Um, Leibniz is a pretty amazing scholar, and to be honest, people are very critical, uh, especially on the internet, of religious philosophers and sort of think they're hacks, and they call them lots of names and think they're just like, they think they don't have a clue what they're talking about. So looking at the caliber of the person that's promoting this argument is actually pretty amazing. So he was, he was sort of a um, co-developer of calculus with Newton, which gets overlooked a lot. Newton usually gets most of the credit, but like even the current notation we use is actually Leibniz, um, and he's brilliant. He was actually a, if not the preeminent philosopher of the time as well. He was superseded by Kant then in the next century, but he was just a brilliant man. He, for example, was a scientist, he was a diplomat, he wrote on theology, epistemology, ethics, and he actually used these things to try to resolve conflicts between Protestants and Catholics. Although he wasn't very successful at that, he made a, he made a legitimate effort. And there's many, many other things he studied. He wrote in six languages, which we can all do that, right? And the reason, what's really cool for his diversity is his main vocation was, does anybody know? Hmm? I don't know what that means. Oh, lens grinder. I thought you were saying a German word. I didn't, sorry. <laughs> lens grinder. I'm like, I should have run across that. I don't know. Um, well, he, he was a, basically in charge, he was a librarian. 
And the library back then was not how, probably how you think of a library today. Like, he's in charge of all the information, basically. And if you're at the hub of all information, it'd be like controlling the internet right now, and you're the only one that has the information, and you sort of dole it out and share it. Uh, he, he was very much into library science and spent a lot of time on that, especially in Germany and a little bit in England. So the fact that he did that really sort of changed how what he knew, but it, it sort of uh, frustrated how he communicated. A lot of his stuff, unlike Newton, wasn't published quite in the same formal way. He had a lot of unpublished manuscripts. He had like tens of thousands of uh, letters that they, they've gone through to and assemble them, and, and he was just a, a brilliant man. There was a French materialist named Diderot that, um, sorry, yeah, so he was well-rounded for a rationalist compared to like Descartes and Spinoza, for example. Um, this quote, perhaps never has a man read as much, studied as much, meditated more, and written more than Leibniz, what he has composed on in the world, God, and nature, and the soul is of the most sublime eloquence. He also made comment that if, when you see what he's accomplished, you just want to go die in a corner because you feel like everything you're doing is useless, which is another quote. So this guy is no slouch. Um, so we're going to look at the argument. Again, it's just a short five-minute video. It does a good job of at least summarizing it, and then we'll uh, come back together and discuss it. We live in an amazing universe. Have you ever wondered why it exists? Why does anything at all exist? Gottfried Leibniz wrote, the first question which should rightly be asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? He came to the conclusion that the explanation is found in God. But is this reasonable? Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. The universe exists. From these, it follows logically that the explanation of the universe's existence is God. The logic of this argument is airtight. If the three premises are true, the conclusion is unavoidable. But are they more plausibly true? And false. The third premise is undeniable for anyone seeking truth. But what about the first premise? Why not say, the universe is just there and that's all. No explanation needed. End of discussion. Well, imagine you and a friend are hiking in the woods and come across a shiny sphere lying on the ground. You would, naturally, wonder how it came to be there. And you'd think it odd if your friend said, there's no reason or explanation for it. Stop wondering. It just is. And if the ball were larger, it would still require an explanation. In fact, if the ball were the size of the universe, the change in its size wouldn't remove the need for an explanation. Indeed, curiosity about the existence of the universe seems scientific and intuitive. Someone might say, if everything that exists needs an explanation, what about God? Doesn't he need an explanation? And if God doesn't need an explanation, then why does the universe need an explanation? 
To address this, Leibniz makes a key distinction between things that exist necessarily and things that exist contingently. Things that exist necessarily exist by necessity of their own nature. It's impossible for them not to exist. Many mathematicians think that abstract objects like numbers and sets exist like this. They're not caused to exist by something else. They just exist by necessity of their own nature. Things that exist contingently are caused to exist by something else. Most of the things we're familiar with exist contingently. They don't have to exist. They only exist because something else caused them to exist. If your parents had never met, you wouldn't exist. There's no reason to think the world around us had to exist. If the universe had developed differently, there might have been no stars or planets. It's logically possible that the whole universe might not have existed. It doesn't exist necessarily. It exists contingently. If the universe might not have existed, why does it exist? The only adequate explanation for the existence of a contingent universe is that its existence rests on a non-contingent being. Something that cannot not exist because of the necessity of its own nature. It would exist no matter what. So, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. But what about our second premise? Is it reasonable to call the explanation of the universe God? Well, what is the universe? It's all of space-time reality, including all matter and energy. It follows that if the universe has a cause of its existence, that cause cannot be part of the universe. It must be non-physical and immaterial, beyond space and time. The list of entities that could possibly fit this description is fairly short, and abstract objects cannot cause anything. Leibniz's contingency argument shows that the explanation for the existence of the universe can be found only in the existence of God. Or, if you prefer not to use the term God, you may simply call him the extremely powerful, uncaused, necessarily existing, non-contingent, non-physical, immaterial, eternal being who created the entire universe and everything in it. So we'll unpack that a little bit because, of course, anytime you try to do something briefly, a few things have to get overlooked. But as far as um, following the logic of it, any questions so far? I'm, I'm a little hesitant to take questions yet before I explain a few things. But did anything pop up there that's like, what did he mean by that word? No one's brave enough to ask questions. OK. Well, that's fine. Um, one thing that I'm a little concerned about is that was trimmed down to four parts. And if you read the book, uh, Leibniz typically approaches this in a five-part argument. So if you're like, why is there one step missing? And or can we just do without these? That's not, not quite how that works, OK? So these, I'm actually going to, I think it's easier to explain them by slightly changing the order. So here's how I'm going to go through this. 
Uh, again, we have premises. Everything that exists has an explanation. You heard that being explained a bit in the video. The universe exists. So even though typically in log logical argumentation, you're supposed to lay out your premises than conclusion, as far as just these two go, I think it's going to make more sense if we talk about it this way. What is the conclusion of this? If everything exists has an explanation and the universe exists, then the universe has an explanation. But So we're not into talking about God in that part of the argument yet. So those premises have to be sort of debated one and two on their own. If, and only if, we're able to establish that, then we can couple it with, okay, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Since we have hypothetically established uh, that the universe has an explanation, then we can finally get to what they made as their fourth point on the video, which is the explanation of the universe is God. So we're going to kind of treat it that way. So the first two, like I said, are premises that lead to a conclusion. And then once you establish that, like, okay, if we believe that's true, then we put it with another premise. And so it's really like two arguments in one. And that's one of the things that makes it maybe just a little bit more complicated than some of the simpler arguments that we'll look at. So as they said, uh, premise two right here uh, is certainly the easiest one to tackle. Now, something I always wondered is like, uh, I could see getting the question, don't Buddhists, for example, believe that the universe doesn't exist? But that's not really true. They believe that our mind's projections onto the universe are illusion, not that the universe itself doesn't exist. And then on top of that, if you're, I think, trying to use large logical argumentation on an Eastern thinking mind, you're not really going, to, you don't really know your audience at that point. You're probably not going to want to pursue that line of reasoning. And these aren't even really the kind of questions that Eastern thought is all that interested in. So most of the time has to be spent on the first premise, and, and that's what was certainly mostly addressed in the video. And I think it's really, and we ought to be encouraged that Western thought um, encourages this type of rational argumentation. Let's discuss things. Let's think about it. And we ought to have confidence that even our theological notions, along with those that we believe to be common sense, we ought to believe that those should stand up to scrutiny, and we ought not be afraid. And if, if it doesn't, then we probably want to know that, even though that's a hard thing to come to terms with, for sure. And so Craig, who has you know decades, he has tons of schooling, decades um, of firsthand experience debating, writing books. He loves the Lord, um, and so he's a great resource for this. He anticipates how each of these premises might be objected to. I'm not going to go over them in the, quite the same order the video did, because I want to try to stress probably the most important things first. <clears throat> and so in this case, when, as it said in the video, according to your own words, God must have an ex explanation for his existence. Well... This does come down to probably the most important thing to take away from this argument today, which is what we mean by necessary and contingent, okay? Um, so there's a logical problem first, okay? If what it means to be necessary and contingent, everything exists, as he said, uh, Leibniz's reasoning was, either in the necessity of its nature, that's if it's necessary, it has to exist, or due to an external cause, which is what it means to be contingent. So what we as created beings are obviously contingent, but the idea of God belongs to the category of being necessary. And that's in theology what we call his aseity. So first there's, of course, the logical problem. If uh, God, ex God had an explanation for his existence, then we'd have an even greater being. And that basically ruins the definition of God. So that's, we're not talking about God at that point anymore. He's, he, he would no longer be the supreme or ultimate reality. 
Therefore, God simply can't be contingent. And as they mentioned, the idea of numbers could be thought of as necessary. The reason that's helpful is we try to wrap our mind around what does it mean for something to be necessary. So in the case of numbers, the theory is, and it's a controversial theory, is that numbers, you couldn't have a world where numbers didn't exist. Now, they might be represented differently, but the idea that numbers would have to exist, and even if there wasn't a world, to apply them to, numbers would still exist. Now, that sounds a little bit to me like if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a theoretical argument, but it might help us grasp the idea a little bit better. But as I said, abstract objects can't cause something to come into being. They're just ideas. They're not things. So we would need a being or a mind to bring things into reality. So questions so far? My goal is to get somebody to ask a question at some point. And I might regret it. I don't know. But you don't. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. So if we say a thing can be necessary, of course, this logically is probably going to lead to the rebuttal. If God can exist, then why can't this just be the case with the universe? As Wendell mentioned the other day, Carl Sagan would take that view, and lots and lots of people take that view. So they make their own appeal, thinking if the theist can use that as a sort of a trump card, then why can't I do it? pages backwards. But as you heard, there's nothing inherent about the universe. There's no logic in saying the universe had to exist. It clearly could have been created. There's no logical problem with that. Now, God would no longer be God if he was created, but the universe would still be the universe if it was, just as a hypothetical argument, created. So there's no logical issue, which is really helpful for us. So we can demonstrate the universe is made up of contingent objects like books, trees, people, planets, galaxies. But the bottom line is large and complicated things are made up of smaller and simple, simpler things, right? You think down to molecules, atoms, and then we've got, what now, quarks, leptons, uh, bosons, you know, stuff that I don't really understand. But if you believe all that stuff ends up being necessary, then the chair you're sitting on is necessary. Like, the chair could not have not existed, which is crazy. And not only that, but it has to be the exact chair you're sitting on. It couldn't have even been red. It couldn't have even been different. And so it, it pushes what a, I think a reasonable person should be willing to tolerate is just beyond belief. Um, strangely enough, it is a very mainstream notion, as they mentioned, the Bertrand Russell quote. So we got to come back to our categories. The Bertrand Russell quote was, it's just there, that's all, that's adequate uh, for some people. But for example, Richard Swinburne takes issue with this. He was an influence on Craig and he calls out this argument for, and I like how he says it, attempting at the outset to prevent any rational inquiry. They're like, you're just cutting off the argument. So he has this part, small quote from him, this objection fails to make any crucial distinction between the universe and other objects, because these same men will believe that there are contingent objects, but then to all of a sudden believe the universe is not made up of only contingent objects. There's a huge leap in logic there that one has to take, certainly, on faith. So the result is basically science, which is the sole authority for the materialist, in our view, would be completely inadequate to bear the burden that it has to have. Uh, they must avoid it by not requiring an explanation for the universe. But it seems to me that amounts to basically scientific hypocrisy because they're basically taking this on faith. And those who try to avoid that accusation are just holding out and saying, well, eventually we'll come up with an explanation and they, they live in the hopes that that will actually happen. No questions? Hmm. 
You guys are smart. Great. Okay. <clears throat> so what about just promoting premise one? Maybe somebody doesn't have an argument. What about it by itself? Well, on its own merit, in all likelihood, most people agree with the idea that things ought to have an explanation. This isn't a crazy idea, after all. And then in the video, they talked about Richard Taylor's uh, sort of uh, mental experiment about walking along in a forest. There's a perfect sphere. I mean, who's not going to ask where that came from? It might remind us a little bit of William Paley's watchmaker analogy. That addresses, okay, something that has an apparent design calls for a designer. This thought experiment simply says, surely this came from somewhere. It's a pretty modest proposition and helps us wrap our mind around why people probably ought to think that way. And then the ball growing to the size of the universe does nothing to remove the need for an explanation. Just because it gets a little bit bigger, you know, like this quantitative different difference, or it gets a little more complicated or a lot more complicated, and you have a qualitative difference, you still don't end up removing the need for an argument. So, um, sorry. If premise one and two hold, and premise one is a big one, then you can establish logically that's, uh, that line three, the universe has an explanation of its existence. And again, a, a fair number of people are okay with that. Once we establish that, then we can couple it with our final premise. If the universe has an explanation, then it's God. So what reason do we have to believe that and what objections might there be? Um, they didn't spend a lot of time on that in the video. Uh, the premise um, is really, interestingly enough, uh, this, a different way of saying premise one. So in premise one, we argued when the atheist claims there's no need for the universe to have an existence. It's, it, this ends up being a logical equivalent. And this, this, I think, has to be explained, both because I love it and it, it really actually ought to make sense. So hang, hang with me here. You have to, if you were tuning out, you've got to focus now, okay? So here's an example of what's called a contrapositive. And Craig actually does talk about contraposition in the book. So you ought to have been, if you read the book, exposed to this a little bit. Here's a really simple example I will tend to use with my students. Uh, if it's raining, then the sidewalk will be wet. We're not looking for, this is a reasonable premise. It's a hypothesis at a conclusion. We're assuming all the sidewalks in the world are not covered with plastic or some, some nonsense like that. We're not tr trying to find a way out. This is a reasonable thing to say and is a true statement. But if we switch those two things, the hypothesis and the conclusion, if the sidewalk's wet, then must it be raining? No, it could have been a sprinkler. The, the concrete could actually be wet. I mean, who knows, you know, it's still drying or something like that. It could have snowed. There's a myriad of reasons that that is not necessarily a true statement. So just if you say something backwards, it is not necessarily true anymore. And I don't think anybody's surprised by that. You can also take the original statement and negate the two statements. So instead of saying it's raining and the sidewalk will be wet, if you say it's not raining, then the sidewalk must be dry. Does that work logically? No, it's actually the same statement as the one before it, for the same reason we'll talk about. But anyway, um, yeah, that doesn't necessarily follow. You can easily come up with an exception and say that's no good. So what's really interesting then, and I only I bring that up to show you why this works, if you actually switch them and negate them both, that's what the contrapositive is actually called. So if you switch the statements about the sidewalk being wet and the raining and then negate them, if the sidewalk is dry, then it must not be raining actually says the exact same thing. So the, the closest I can come to to explain why that works, it's like a double negative, right? So if I say um, I have students, I could say I'm not without students, 
It's like something Chesterton would say, unnecessary words. Like, nobody needs to say it that way. I'm sorry. I always have to get, yeah. So it says the same thing. So double negatives, even in math and other places, cancel each other out. So that's probably the best I could do explaining, like, yeah, this is actually is a logically equivalent thing. So these two things are the same thing. How does that apply to what we were talking about? <laughs> if atheism is true, then the universe has no explanation. If we come to this explanation, then what would it be if I switched them? I would have to first say the universe has an explanation, so I put it first and I negate it. It's a little technical. And then I take what was said first, I put it at the end, and I change it from true to false. So if atheism is true, then the universe has no explanation of its existence, is saying the same thing as if the universe has an explanation, therefore atheism is false. And of course, if atheism is false, that's just another way of saying that God exists. So it's, it's worth looking at. It's very interesting. What, what that does is it saves us a lot of work. And it says, OK, well, we've kind of already talked about this. And an atheist would probably agree, yeah, we've already talked about this. And we don't need to cover the same ground again. OK, so that's kind of the idea. I think something, uh, just a few things worth mentioning in clo closing. People are always curious about alternate explanations for the universe. Because you hear a lot of really weird theories. And so how does this stuff tie in? Now, a not, not so strange theory that is, that is generally uh, accepted now is the idea of the Big Bang. What would we say about something like that? Well, if you don't know, the Big Bang is this small, single, dense uh, energy that in an instant exploded and caused the universe to come into being. But of course, what would be the problem with that is the material that makes up the Big Bang still needs an explanation. So the Big Bang would be a contingent thing that requires its own explanation. If you're going to say that's necessary, you might as well just say the universe is necessary. <clears throat> also worth noting is how Stephen Hawking, among others, has proposed that the universe did come from nothing, and that nothing is the law of gravity that made it inevitable that it would come around. And I've heard Craig debate this, and it is maddening to hear these people talk about these concepts. Because what you find very quickly is they don't mean nothing when they talk about nothing. It's very deliberately misleading. What they mean is there's positive energy and negative energy, which is basically gravity, and they cancel each other out for a zero sum, and that's probably true. <clears throat> but then they say, but of course, the quantum vacuum wasn't empty to begin with. And it's like they're just talking in circles. Like You can't use words that people think mean, though. They just say, oh, that's, that, that's not that kind of nothing. Like they talk about nothing like it's something, and it is, it is, it is absolutely, I don't, I don't understand it. So that's not what anyone means by nothing. <clears throat> and there are, of course, various theories. Einstein came up with the theory of relativity and space-time, combining them and saying, OK, we've got a four-dimensional universe. String theory comes along and says, no, there's nine dimensions plus time. It's 10-dimensional. Like if you ask Google, how many dimensions are in the universe? 10, you know, like that's the answer now, supposedly. But then superstring theory promises us there's 11, and if you go past 11, it collapses down into 11. I don't have a clue what any of that means. But, but the point is there's these crazy theories that, that there is some, there's going to be answers found at some point uh, along with things like an infinitely expanding and contracting cycle, saying this has just done this for all eternity. Or we have things like the multiverse if you're a Spider-Man fan. You know, we're, we're one, of, one, of, one universe of many in a multiverse. But all that to say, because I feel like that can be distracting, all that stuff is very fascinating. But regardless of what happens, physics, quantum mechanics, whatever, Leibniz's argument, the point is it reminds us 
that whatever is the case, an explanation has to exist for that mechanism or that thing you want to talk about. And that's fine. And we don't need to be threatened to learn about those things. And it is all very fascinating. It is very hard to see how anything could be truly necessary apart from a, not, as the video said, a non-physical, a non immaterial being outside of time and space, vastly superior in basically every imaginable way. So. That's the argument. That'll give, you, give us something to study if that doesn't make a, a, a ton of sense. A couple comments in closing that I think are absolutely worth noting. And again, if you don't walk away with anything else sticking in your mind, the idea of necessary and contingent is absolutely critical to the whole argument. One thing I, that I love that, is, that was hinted at in the video but is not talked about very much and I find it frustrating is the fact that we ask these kind of questions. Has anybody thought about that? Like who sits around and philosophizes about God, the universe, and gets worked up and passionate about it and we have convictions? Well, cats and monkeys don't do that, right? So it's like the fact that we ask those kinds of questions is absolutely fascinating. The fact that we have curiosity and we're compelled to do those things. I find that very, very compelling. And then also the fact that what we believe we can do with the information once we get it, that is a really, really big deal. And Leibniz actually talks a lot about his belief that these two things are actually part of the metaphysical or supernatural realm, that that's not a natural function of mere physical human beings. That's his contention. <clears throat> and in fact, Lewis makes kind of the same point. This is a quick summary of his argument from reason, which I love. It says, all possible knowledge depends on the validity of reasoning. If the feeling of certainty, which we express with words like because and therefore and since is a real perception of how things outside our minds actually must be, well and good. But if the certainty is merely a feeling in our minds and not a genuine insight into realities beyond them, if it merely represents the way our mind happens to work, then we can have no knowledge. And that takes some time to think about. But if you haven't ever read about that, I would suggest that's uh, uh, just another thing to read about and pursue. And it's great. It basically says if you have a purely material universe, it is non-rational. It's not from a mind. And therefore, so-called rationality can't exist. And if you believe yourself to be rational, then you have to reject naturalism. <clears throat> and the last question is, so. If this is so compelling and amazing, why isn't everyone convinced? Well, the short answer, I would say, is free will, because we have a dis God has given us the right to make decisions and accept or reject certain probabilities, uh, possibilities. And I think at some point, everybody does wrestle with the idea of God. They ask questions like, uh, are miracles possible? And can a rational person <clears throat> believe in God. One might say, can a rational person not believe in God? You can go on that debate all day long. Craig refers to these ideas as jumping from the natural to the supernatural or the mundane or ordinary to the ultra-mundane or physics versus metaphysics. These are typically on the right the words that, we're going to, that are used to describe a necessary being <clears throat> like God. And it seems like at, at some point, when people are confronted with these truths about the universe, it goes one of two ways, right? We humble ourselves, accept the reality of things around us, or we don't, and we don't humble ourselves. Stephen Hawking is unfortunately a, a great example of that. In his 1988 book, A Brief History of Time, he appeared to accept God's role in the creation of the universe and even hoped to someday know the mind of God, which is a little bold. but. 
that was his goal. But as his work developed, his conclusion became a creator is not necessary. So, but just the irony that the acquisition of knowledge would rule out God, it, it is really ironic, right? Because it's a fundamental misunderstanding. God is precisely what makes science worth pursuing. So I'm going to close again with a slightly extended version of what I, I read verses 19 and 20 before moving on through verse 22, again in Romans 1. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, <clears throat> so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So I think the challenge here is given that many people do put themselves in jeopardy by disregarding the revelation that is given to them. You know, Leibniz's argument attempts to compel the reader to, to reconsider that notion. Um, so may God grant us wisdom and success as we work throughout the series to equip ourselves um, and help our neighbor overcome their unbelief. Thanks, Dave. It was interesting, fun. Um, really appreciated it. it was, I thought you laid that out very clearly. I had an opportunity to read an earlier version of this earlier in the week, and I was a little concerned it was too philosophical, too heady. But listening to it today, I thought you were just right on the mark pretty well. But we still have a few minutes. Does anyone have any questions for Dave? All right. Okay, so next week we have the picnic. In two weeks, we'll continue the series on um, apologetics. And Tim will be dealing with something a little similar. You'll be tackling the cosmological argument. Looking forward to that? All right. The Kalam cosmological argument. All right. So let's stand, and I will close with this, these familiar words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Upon those words, you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love. <laughs>